Welcome to Secret Police, where we explore the history and methods of the world's most brutal secret police forces. Today I have something special for you, a much overdue interview with the host of the Eastern Border podcast and Latvian journalist, Kristaps Andresens. Kristaps started his show in 2009 and has spread his immense wealth and knowledge about the Soviet Union across the world. He's been very kind to me since he gave my show a shout out early on and was generous enough to give me quite a bit of his time to get this episode done. We first recorded in September, then I was an idiot and didn't download the files to edit within Discord's allotted time of six days. We met again and suffered technical difficulties, mostly my internet deciding to be unreliable during our recording hence the name of this episode. We discussed the Oprichniki, how Soviet secret services changed the culture in Russia and Eastern Europe, and where Russia and its security apparatus finds itself today, and where it's headed into the future. I hope you enjoy. everybody hello everybody we are in our second try trying to understand a lot of things about secret police podcast and secret police in general because this is the second take we recorded one it was about a month ago about a month ago yeah also hello people i'm up i should probably introduce hello i am christophe sandres um uh you, you do not need to know who i am at all if you ask too many questions, then the KGB shall come and, and, and ask you some. Uh, I, I, I host this Barrier podcast. You probably have heard of me. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But uh, I, I do I do this this show called Eastern Border for, I don't know, nine, nine, ten years now, where I'm explaining Soviet Union to people and Russia and right now the war. And great friend of Secret Police podcast, because he's been on my show. And we're just... Uh, trying to fix the thing that we tried to record last time, lots of technical difficulties. Uh, nice to be on here. Amazing to be here again. Yeah, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're on. And like I said last time too, I um I I'd meant to have you on earlier and it just um you know, just with like schedules and time differences and things like that and hadn't it hadn't happened, but uh you've been very I'd say instrumental in helping me as my show is only about a year old um, and helping me uh, build an audience and um, it's, it's a getting thing it that out we there. do. Yeah. That's the thing that we do. And I'm really happy that I have been able to do so because I was propped up by, you know, the likes of Dan Carlin and Daniel Libellelli and, and even Martyr mate with whom we have some disagreements with, but still, and I think, you know, if, among podcasters, if you're a young podcaster listening to this, you can reach out to me or Secret Police Podcast, and we will help you. We will help Please you. Do. Because, because, yeah, because in, in the podcasting sphere, I haven't heard of any podcaster drama, as I've seen in YouTube, but, but we're trying to help each other out. And, well, as, as truly the subject matter of, of Secret Police has been Russian Secret Police for a while, and uh, I'm, I'm sort of the, the, the Russian culture, Eastern European Soviet culture person here. I gave him my blessing when he was doing episode two. That much I remember. So that yes, was fine. <laughs> and I was actually, I was quite surprised. I, I, I can't uh, describe to you how much I was fan, fangirling. Oh, uh, no, when I no, that you had no, man, no. said you liked my show. I do. Because I do. <laughs> 
one of my big concerns when I first started was that I'm talking about a country and a region that I had never been to. And I sort of roll my eyes at Americans trying to, trying to talk about like these regions of the world that most people, most Americans, I should say, have never been to. Look, that's at least, at least you did it fine. The worst thing that I've done was I saw a show that was trying to build, I'm not going to name the show because that's going to be rude, but, uh, there was a show whose logo went all folk Cyrillic, you know, using the diverse R's as regular oh, R's and all yep, this stuff. Yeah, right? that's super cringy. And and uh, I don't know about you, but to me, it's kind of like it's not fun. It's stupid because it's you have to change your thought patterns. Because I I speak Latvian, Russian, and English, and read a bit of German, read a bit of Japanese, but you sh- you shift your mental. You shift your mental patterns. If you see Cyrillic, you read in Cyrillic. You treat it that way. Yeah. So when, then you read something written in this this Fox Cyrillic. It takes a time to understand that. Wait, what? Oh no, the, there's someone just acting. Just stupid. It's. I think it's one of the Call of Duty games. It's. It's the. Uh, the. Um, I almost said episode. It's the mission where you're like. In Chernobyl. You're like in Chernobyl. Think. Uh, Oh no! It's the one at the it's one at the airport where you're oh. like a terrorist group, and if you, um, if you look at some of the kiosks in this airport, it, they they do exactly what you were describing, where they have stuff that's like this faux Cyrillic that English mixture. That mission I was trying to think of is from Call of Duty: Modern Warfare Two, and it's called No Russian. That is just horrible because that's just that. I don't even know. I'm used to see. That's the thing. Uh, I'm I'm used to I'm used to feeling like the the odd man out because online speaking. Well, yeah. Um, I live in Latvia. We not many people care about a region that much. So you know that that kind of ties me ties me to your end. We're we're both we're both not from the most mainstream of 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 situations there, and that's yeah. because we both like like aviation. Yes. I, I am a, I am a student pilot in training, and, um, and I fly PV drones. So uh, yeah, that's that's also a thing that unites us. By the way, but let's get on to the subject matter because we've been warmed up, and this is going to take three hours if we just get on the if sidelines. If we just keep keep BSing. <laughs> oh no! Yeah, you have this exciting um, new source that you are telling me about. Oh yeah, about I, the, opportunity, uh, the opportunity. Since since last time, I wasn't wasn't able to talk much about that part. I was able to talk about NKVD and, and Cheka and, and GKCB and and all the other letters. You know, the letter agencies. <laughs> yes, they are, the letter. They're numerous. I, I call them I call them the things. But then I managed to dig up, and I actually took a subscription. It cost me three euros per month, but I'll just cancel after this one. I got a subscription to something called Большая Российская Энциклопедия, or The Great Russian Encyclopedia. Okay. And right now I'm opening this one, which is uh, <clears throat> an article on Oprichnina. And they say they have the, they have the tags there, which students can check in because it's good for students, like political programs, comma, courses, Oprichnina. And uh, let, me, let me define you how the Russians this day see Oprichnina in, in themselves. It, it might be a bad solution because I'm not... I'm just opening a machine translation in English because if I would do that myself, it's going to be pretty rough. But I'll just fix the, the grammar letters here. Oprichnina from the old Russian, Russian Oprichni, separate special. 
a separate a separate formation within the Russian state. Oprishny was the thing. The personal possession of Tsar Ivan IV Vasilievich, the terrible, the terrible, however, is a horrible word, which would be the awesome, or the thunderous, and his family. This was, uh, it had its own social political institutions, governing bodies, military forces, service organization, and finances. It was the main weapon in the Tsar's plan in his struggle to strengthen personal power, to establish complete control over the Boyar Duma, the political and church elites, in confrontation with individuals who, in his eyes, were traitors and enemies of the state. Created by decree, dated in historiography to the period no earlier than January 5th and no later than February 15th, 1565, the Oprichina was consistently separated from the rest of the state, the Zemshina. That's the whole thing. Yeah. This is the thing we didn't mention last time. Oprichnina, technically, as it starts out, it's not part of the state. It's like a state within a state, almost. It's a state within the state. And yeah. this, this should, this should uh, kind of inform you how everything is going to go from there. No, the Shilaviki today and everything, this is why they don't see themselves that much, because they were established in their own traditional history, completely separately from, from everything possibly. I was trying to think of an equivalent, like a modern day equivalent of, for, for how to think about the Oprichnina, like some sort of shadow government almost within yeah, like, a legitimate but they have, government. They have their own, they have their own, they had their own territories. They had their own, like, serve them. Like, they were just, like, they, they there are boyars, right? There, there yep. are boyars who are just like the traditional feudal court. Then there's the Oprichnina. They function exactly the same. They have their own, like, serf villages. They oppress people of their own. The guys mm -hmm. who are in this, they have their own thing. It's just separate. It's just so, so weird. <laughs> and they, they went and massacred people. <laughs> like I mean, in Novgorod. Who, yeah, like in Novgorod. This is the thing, because, uh, again, uh, Novgorod, not usually Novgorod. We reminded this. Yes, this, this, we had last this whole... Last time we had this whole conversation, because... Because when I did this first episode, my brain was in Nizhny Novgorod, which is east of Moscow. But then revisiting the episode to do a video for YouTube, I realized that it was actually, it's actually, um, it's something, it's that it's north of Moscow. It's it, Novgorod. Yes, thank you. And I, uh, I had to like make an, I didn't make an edit. I never like go and like re-edit my episodes, but I definitely wrote something like, "Hey, I, uh, no, no. I fucked up." <laughs> well, like this is this is what the Russian Russian uh, encyclopedia says. I'll open this encyclopedia for other articles too. Just I just got it. Oprichnina terror reached its apogee during Ivan the Fourth's campaign against Novgorod and Pskov, December fifteen sixty nine, February 1570, and during executions in Moscow in August. The reason for the campaign was the testimony of the Novgorod clerk during torture in the quote-unquote case of Prince Vladimir Andreevich, as well as a certain Polish uh, memorandum sent from Novgorod. The punitive expedition was prepared in secret as a large-scale military operation. As they advanced, the Oprichniki killed everyone passing by, and the cities and villages were subjected to pogroms starting from the Tver border. In Tver, the property of monasteries and churches was first destroyed or confiscated, and the settlements were destroyed. The Oprichniki executed members of the clergy, uh, and there is also a, a special sentence here. G. L. Strugatskobielski strangled the former me me metropolitan Philip II in the Tver Otroch in honor of blah, 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 after his refusal to press the complaint. 
Everyone was killed, local clerks, children of boyars, merchants, um, as well as those still in the exile. Like, massive, massive, just, you know, you go on a military campaign, you conquer the land, then the preacher comes in and, you know, just, uh, well... um, Brutalizes everybody that's left. that, that, That scares me. And they are their own thing. Yeah. They are not... This is what, what's important, which I learned the last time. They are not subject to the crown. They are subject to Ivan IV. It's what we would call extrajudicial. Yes. It's kind of yeah. like, it's kind of like the FBI, FBI and, and something, I, I presume. If we, <laughs> if we can compare the FBI to the Obergeniki. <laughs> well, it's, uh, I'm sorry. I, 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 I don't, I, I don't know. I, I don't even know about the FBI that much. I, Thankfully, I haven't had any interactions with the with the Federal Bureau investigation. I had a very interesting interaction with the FBI a couple, maybe like a couple months ago. Okay, were, sir. Yeah, we'll sp- split it in. Let's oh go. well, so I definitely, I definitely told this story on the on the you did. first. Yeah. I think you did, but I might, might have forgotten this. So, so, so I was on. out walking my dog, and I saw an. Uh, an armored vehicle in this parking lot that's like behind our house. I got a little closer as one does thinking it was just like the county sheriff or something. No, here are these guys in full tack gear and, and in big words on the front says FBI. So I, I did what a normal person would do and walked up to them and said, Hey, what's going on here? Cause they were like, they were sort of parked in front of somebody's house that I, we don't know them, but it's like this elderly woman. And I was like, man, what was she doing that got these guys attention? No, they were just, um, they were just waiting there for, uh, some sort of like SWAT drill basically. So instead of building an entire house to practice in for like raids and stuff that would cost the FBI money. They wait for uh, a home in the area to be demolished, and they weren't. They weren't. Uh, they weren't about to demolish this woman's house. There's some. I I didn't see that. It's not in my neighborhood. They were waiting to go to some other um, home that was about to be demolished, and they were going to do some sort of like practice there before they tore it down. So they were going to fuck it up before it, <laughs> before they took a wrecking ball to it. And how the rest of that story goes is that I continued to walk my dog. And then on my way back home, I thought, Hey, I should go tell these guys about my show. They're FBI agents. Why not? And that's exactly what I did. Well, well, meanwhile, 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 I can tell you something more like, uh, as we're going to, as you're going to ask me more questions, I just wanted to finish my preaching the yes. thing about how it's stated in the state with, a, with an example that we also spoke about last time we recorded this, which is lost to the ages now, their listeners. But uh, I found the article from Reuters, which is a very big news agency, about how Iron Felix rises again over, over Russia's, uh, they call it spy service. I oh, yeah. Police service. Yeah. And they, they, they had a quote from Sergei Narishkin, the chief of Russia's foreign, uh, foreign intelligence service, the SVR. Yeah, right. Well, just, it's the successor to KGB's first chief directorate. It's the same thing. There is no FSB. That is just the same stupid thing. And he wrote in um, no less than September 11th, 2023. September 11th, right? Uh, nice, nice day to pick things. Quote, Colleagues, the sculpture in front of which we are standing is a somewhat reduced copy of the famous monument to Dzerzhinsky installed on Lyubyanka Square in Moscow in 1958. 
Narishkin said on the anniversary of Jarzinski's birthday. His winged words that only a person with a cold head, a warm heart, and clean hands can become a security officer have become a significant moral guideline for several generations of employees of the security agencies of our country. That's how they, they opened this. And I would like to explain something, this cold head, warm heart, and clean hands. Yeah, cold head means that you're ready to kill a moment's notice. Warm heart means that, you know, you're still alive, and clean hands is because you have leather gloves, because you can, like, you know, throw the blood away. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's, the, that's the political joke here. But we've come from this to that. And, and Felix Dzerzhinsky, a Polish person by nationality, mm-hmm. no less. And, and from Iron a bourgeois Felix. family, ironically, too. Just like no, yeah, yeah, it's like, he's the, basically the symbol of the Red Terror. Of of everything, it's kind of like of of Lenin's Red Terror. Not of Lenin's Red Terror at the beginning, yeah. Like, but just Stalin also kind of like them. But Lenin, Lenin was not nice. This is what I kind of uh, also. This is what people misunderstand often. People kind of think that Lenin was the good guy and he did the right thing. Then Stalin came up and corrupted the whole thing. No, that is a mistake. Lenin was not a nice person through and through. But that, that, that you should listen to about in my podcast instead of this one. But if we're talking secret police stuff, yeah, well, this is why right now in my rush we have Felix Dzerzhinsky statues. When I was doing my research for, uh, on uh, Soviet security services, I really went into it expecting that the NKVD was going to be the worst of them. In term- and by worst, I mean in terms of uh, just like horrors perpetrated or lives but i was actually really surprised and pretty disgusted about the cheka well there's a reason why everyone calls them cheka uh, no matter the reiteration they have loved the big mark. i mean everyone from even today even today you you hear people saying that you know the the, the cheka people came a term that really stuck through the ages and i remember i remember last time we talked that that um you were saying that the that the Soviet security forces like really changed the culture in Eastern Europe quite a bit, and in Russia too, quite a bit. Yeah, that's 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 the situation here because um, the big aspect here is how if they are independent from the state in in many ways, then they kind of influence the culture, and then culture influences them back. For example, in Latvia, I can tell you about these these years that we've had there. In Latvia, we used to be extroverted people. We used to be friendly. We we were we weren't. We weren't much as much Nordic as we were, you know, just Western. But if if you will live under the control of and under constant supervision and threat from the secret police, of course you start to think about whether or not you can speak to someone, use these political jokes as an as a form of recognizing who's your friend, who's not your friend, and then you start to mistrust everyone around you. All the time, and it has left a really big mark on everything that that's, that's going on here in Latvia and like in the Baltics and in the region in general. Because we we became much more introverted, much more you know, m- much less friendly to foreigners, like not just foreigners, much less friendly to everyone all the time. It's all about whether or not you're. You know, you do not speak to people in the street. You do not talk about your emotions. You do not talk about a lot of things because you never know who might be listening and who the uh, other part, other party is. So, 
and that's the that's, that's the scary part because it truly truly felt that way you see and if it um and if it we we used to be more open more more sort of thing but like when, when you know that you're you when we had a lot of these documents happening like when your your friends and your the, your neighbors can they can just you know write a denunciation on you right and then you're gone well and, and then you know that every time in your workplace that you, that you exist there that every time there's a there's a trip happening and there every time something's going on there will be people who are you know from from that other side from from, from the these vetted agents and they're they're most of the agents also they're just they're, they're not there because they're evil people they're there because they probably also have something dark in their family or, or, or friend circle and they have just been you know basically told to you know work with us or we'll punish your family all that stuff kind of a hard thing to comprehend it really changed the whole culture of, of a bunch of col- a bunch of countries here especially here in Latvia we used to be friendlier and nicer to people right now we're very much like very introverted and, and it's left scars that I, I i call i call them post-soviet mentality and i try to you know work my best to get rid of them a lot of xenophobia there a lot of mistrust a lot of you know in focusing inwards rather outwards and and just mistrusting new ideas in general which is always a bad thing just being so skeptic that you can't even really accept the fact that some things weren't as good it's really you know, being living under this whole situation where, where you might as well be just, uh, where you just might be, uh, where you don't know if if one wrong word said at a conversation just fixes up your whole career for a while. This is where the internet decided to crap out on me. So we're finally back in our what? What is this? Fourth attempt? Fifth? Sixth? Uh, the FSB doesn't want anybody listening to this. Uh, of course, I mean. And that's not even a joke. Uh, you are hearing this in one go, but let me tell you, this episode not was not fun. not made in one go. It was pretty <laughs> pretty horrible. <laughs> now let's go back talking about Czech as we were before. Yes, something cheery. <laughs> oh well, uh, well, of course, it's the happiest happiest thing that we could do. Uh, I thought the Cheka was like a horror movie level terror. Oh yeah, and then you said that you weren't sure of the kind of people that were recruited to carry out those things, but there had to be a lot of fear in order to keep the early Soviet Union together. Of course, because you know you're you're coming out of war communism. If you remember, in like just after Soviet Union was declared, there was this thing called war communism because there's a massive. Ungern Sternberg and all his buddies are acting crazy around those parts, you know, and it's pretty nasty. Um, we'll get Alex on. Uh, we'll, we'll get Alex on to, to speak about more about the Mad Baron, but uh, it's a civil war. There is war communism happening. Uh, everyone's properties are being taken. Everyone's cows are just being stolen by other people. So you have to you have to put on the economical leash. You have to get rid of the kulaks. You have to focus on actually, you know, winning. The whole situation. So, and, and then the checker comes in real handy at this point. But it's still nowhere near the, the whole... Like, and and they, they were rough. They were truly rough. And they did... Well, my, my worst thing that I think I wrote for Jordan Harbour, if you, if you remember that guy, he's from uh, Canada. And he, 
he did this Twilight Histories podcast and I wrote one for him about the Czech operational practices. And my scariest thing about Czech was uh, the kishka, the whole pet that they would like put you in there which, where you couldn't sit down. Kishka means the kind of the intestine thing. And that was just scary. The, these guys... Well, then they they would douse people with water uh, in like the winter in those and then turn them into statues, frozen statues. Well... That's a popular treatment throughout the history, but the sheer level, I mean, I, I last time we spoke about this, because again, lots of attempts, I thought it may be some, <laughs> some, some sadism, but I think this, currently, with, with current events, I'm starting to think that this is mostly a result of, uh, you know, people being dehumanized to the maximum. Yeah. It's a result of, you can't do this unless, because, you know, there were a lot of people working in the Czech, right? And you can't have uh, you can't have all these people working there and doing all these things if you do not fully believe that what you're doing is actually the right thing. You know, if 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 uh, I, I think it was a result of mass dehumanization, in a sense, you manipulate people into you manipulate people into thinking objects. Yeah, like they you have to get the ideology in to the point where. That they really have to see the 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 other, so to speak, as someone less than human, less yes. than uh, less than something, and that's that's a that's a weird thing because, again, I read about other secret services and uh, there were sure CIA did a lot of experimentation on 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 people and everything, and and, and FBI as well. But I I haven't, I really have. Been, I, I think this comes again from the Oprichina. I think that the Czech are the only ones that truly kind of that truly treat their own people as the enemy, if you know what I mean. Because they are, uh, the, this is why I mentioned the preach in the beginning, because they are separate from, every, from the structure. They do not even see their own people as themselves, in a way. I think it's more, more like, more like they, they truly are trained from the very inception in, in, in this very special case of Russia to see the even even your own countrymen as the other, which is generally scary. Truly, it's just something that, I don't know, I, I would be very afraid of. And you said that now they're they're wanting to, or I don't know if they are just wanting to, or if they already have put up a new statue of Felix Dzerzhinsky. Oh, they did, they did. I, I That was the thing that I read, which is, by the way, also saved, uh, his... Is that is, is is the opening speech about the Dzerzhinsky statue by Sergei Narishkin, chief of Russia's foreign intelligence service, the SVR? I found some footage on Instagram. Somebody posted of the statue being torn down uh, in the '90s. Comments were troubling. Was <laughs> a lot of people saying, "Like, look at those traitors." But Felix Dzerzhinsky wasn't even Russian; he was Polish. No, he's Polish, and also like from a bourgeois family, just like Lenin. It always comes down to 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 some sort of weird situation. Where, like we we can still we can all still think about what does it even mean to to be a part of 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 any of these secret police situations? Because once it comes down to it, what like you you can ask a lot of questions, but but like why would you do that? Is is one question. Number two question is what would what would make a government decide that they need such a complete control over everyone? 
because this is a control to the uh, vet, to a very serious level. Like th this alone, this alone shows that th this it wouldn't be there if the the government wouldn't need it. It's like you know, if communism, as Soviet Union portrayed it, uh, it would be truly the best ideology ever. Then uh, why would you need a police that literally prohibits people from leaving their own country? And and you know, why would you need to keep everyone on super tight leash? There's uh, there's something going on there that the 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 Soviet government might not have you know told the people exactly as it was. Do you think Felix Dzerzhinsky ever had ambitions to lead the Soviet Union himself? Uh not sure about that. Really, not sure about that. But I'm pretty sure everyone thought this way because, uh, like we checked last time, like we checked last time, it was just uh, you know. If you look at the early leaders, especially in the Soviet era, in the Soviet era, everything, you know, uh, the leaders of, um, of of the secret police in Russia, they don't tend to live very long, prosperous <laughs> lives. No. For example, Dzerzhinsky himself, apparently, you know, um, Britannica.com, and I'm using a neutral encyclopedia here, Britannica.com, the British encyclopedia, just wrote about his, writes about his death, quote, In 1926, during a debate at Central Committee session, Dzerzhinsky collapsed and died. How convenient. <laughs> and if you look at everyone else, you know, like, and some of them were truly true pieces of work. I mean, like I said, we spoke about this last time, but if you watch Death of Stalin movie, when you, when you see Beria dying, you know, I had to root for Zhukov and Khrushchev, which is hard for me because they're, they also are not the best of people, but like, you know, Beria was such, such a horrible person. I know. That, oh my God. That, like, like, we spoke about this, like, but the thing is that, Again, it, because being one of these people, right, who were leading the whole secret police in the Soviet Union and previously Russia, yeah, that's not the best job to have. No. By no means. That is, that is a very dangerous job to have. And I think that if, the, if, if Dzerzhinsky had showed any ambition whatsoever, he'd be gone from his post way earlier than he, you know, Actually, he totally randomly died um, from, uh, we do not know what, but the totally uh, natural causes. Natural causes, nothing else, of, of course. That's a, it's interesting because you'd think that the security chief is like the best place. Uh, yeah, the best place to take over from the leader because they have like the, the manpower. Not really, because, because uh, if, you, if, you heard, if you've heard my show, you, you've heard about the... the the pillars of Kremlin, the towers of Kremlin, as they're called. There's, there are three of them from old times. One is the KGB, the secret police. They always, you know, watched over everyone and everything. Then there's the army, who are in all, in every possible occasion, in a massive rivalry with the KGB, right? And then there's the party, who still control the posts and everything. And they might like not have the the guns. However, what they do have is often scarier. They have the, you know, potential to you know, get your friends in the right positions. They're kind of um, the party is also a, a, a sort of one of these pillars of, of what's happening there. So mm -hmm. it's always a competition. And you know, every general who commands units has always someone attached to them in the Soviet Union, and right now as well. Right now, pretty much as well. There are political units attached to the Russian armies. Political. Uh, they're not called politkomissars anymore, but right. they're still there. They essentially save, serve the same purpose. Yeah, and they sometimes give out the, the weirdest, the most dumbest of commands as well. But, but it is what it is. It's just that there is massive rivalry, and uh, at least right now, well, what Putin used to do, that's one of the things that, sorry for the tangent, but 
one of the things that Putin used to be used to be all about is how he had sort of united in a way these Kremlin towers, right? However, it seems to be that this is not exactly the case anymore. It's, it seems that they are still very much very proactively bashing each other's head in with uh, with a stick, M- metaphorical stick, but still. So s- since we're on the topic of the Kremlin, um, we sort of touched on this bef- before we started recording the. Well, we touched first on time. everything before. <laughs> we touched on everything. <laughs> what's look? What, what's going on with Putin's health? Who knows? To be honest, uh, if someone tells you Putin's dead. If someone tells you Putin had a heart attack, do not believe them. Because uh, th- there was this thing. There's Vladimir Solovey, a very famous, infamous, so to speak, guy who's a politologist. Very smart person, really. However, however, he's also a very much rumor mill. And you should not trust him really that much. And when he, he the day that everyone spoke about Putin's heart attack and how Putin actually might be gone... Yeah, he was the guy that, you know, managed to make a live stream about, you know, uh, on Telegram about life without Putin. What's going to happen next? And guess what? Uh, during his live stream to which he sold uh, 200 and, and like it was, he sold a bunch of tickets and they cost like 10 euros a piece, which is about, I think, $11 maybe. But during that stuff, uh, yeah, during that stuff, we got all the news about, oh no, Putin's actually dead. He's he's like being being you know, having a heart attack. No, that's all nonsense. That's all nonsense. That's all trickery. I, I, don't, even, I don't even know who, who's benefiting from this. It's just another way how to... I was going to say, what's the point? Um, there is no point. It's just, it's just some people wanting to make money from all this situation. Because like always, like always and everywhere, like even internally, even internally inside uh, the, the whole apparatus... Like always, agents spying on other agents, and you you should know the fact that in the Soviet Union it was it was not just everyone is happily united against the capitalist forces. It was the Vienna bureau uh, fighting against uh, you know, rivaling the Moscow, rivaling Saint Petersburg, rivaling everyone else, trying to fight for their own little thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The urban centers rivaling the rest of the it's country. Just, it, it, it's what's happened. It, it, ha- it happens all the time. You can't do anything about it. So but that's like kind of in a, in a huge, in a huge, in any huge country, that should be, that probably is that way. Although I don't even know. I mean, is, is there, I, I know that there's an, uh, I'm sorry for the tangent once again, but I know that there's an army versus Navy American football game. There is. Is there a CIA versus versus FBI football game? No, but that would be awesome. Maybe we should start something like that. I have actually now seen a whole game of American football, thanks to my uh, people on Discord. Some games happened in London. Oh, yeah. And I saw one. I think it was between Buffalo Bills and, uh, I don't remember the other team. Well, horrific. But I've seen one. But talking, talking about all this secret police stuff, um, that's a thing. It's all about the culture part. And right now, everyone expects them to be powerful and everywhere. And, and sometimes they're not. And, and currently, the biggest issue is the whole, all, all of these cracks that we're seeing lately. All, of the, all, the, all the facts that, that show us how it degraded over time. In, in a way, the, the control, you know, 
as weird as it seems, if you think about it, Soviet Union did not need a Rosguardia unit. The, the Soviet Union and, and did not need a unit that will go out and beat protesters on the streets. Think about it. They did not need a unit like that because they knew no one would do it because everyone was too afraid of the secret police because they to knew even try. they would. Yeah, too scared to even try. Right now, if you need a special unit to do that, then it kind of shows that... Uh, People aren't scared enough to not do it people aren't scared enough yeah they're still scared of, of the of the fsb and everything but totally totally makes makes sense now d is that to say that like people didn't actually openly protest say like sometimes Stalin? they did very no one openly protested stalin there were some cases like in 1962 later on but it wasn't exactly about stalin there were some protests there were some people who went on singular uh, actions and everything and uh and stuff but it wasn't that widespread there there were some very brave people and in some cases some protests were for like very everyday things and they just didn't go through uh, as planned because you know uh, Soviets always had this co collective responsibility it's not that you know if something bad happens in your district and you deal with this and you report it upstairs as they would say mm -hmm. then it doesn't mean that you're gonna get off scot-free for dealing with this you will just get punished for even you know, for, for even for even mentioning this, for even doing, uh, you know, something of, of the sort. I mentioned this in one of my early episodes because this comes from a small town, from a small town in Latvia. Because a lot of people, you know, in here it was a complicated situation. Obviously, a, a lot of people, you know, had family members who fought on both sides of the World War. Because, you know, Stalin comes in, murders a bunch of your family members, sends them to gulags, then, then Hitler comes in, promises you freedom, and... And then, you know, you kind of believe him because there's no internet, there's no information available and some of the people volunteered. So you go to right. fight against Stalin and then you're in the front lines and then, you know, messages come in that, oh no, this Hitler guy, yeah, he's now killing all your friends too. He's just as bad. What are you going to do then? <laughs> it's almost as if they're the same person. They're both megalomaniacal evil, evil guys. But the thing is, the thing is, uh, a lot of people, you know, were veterans of the of World War II here. And what happened was that, you know, in, in the in the town of Smilta, one of the the, 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 the everything was split in kolkhoz, and as, as everything, and the kolkhoz was supposed to take care of its World War II veterans, you know. And one guy was fighting; he was in, even in the Red Army. And the the guys did not, you know, the local kolkhoz did not repair his local house's roof for such a long time that he pulled out a mortar from his basement that he had saved up during the war and just started shelling the local Kolkhoz administration building. That was never reported upstairs because that would be so horrible that they actually just fixed the roof. They took away the mortar from him, but that never got kicked upstairs. Like so, wow. so like if you did if you did tiny little things, then that'd be, you know, that'd be punished. If you did something truly outrageous, then probably that would be just put down because the local KGB officer, you know, he'd get into so much trouble for even allowing... Why does he? Why does this person have a mortar? Why, why is he shell? What is going on? Like, this responsibility being kicked up, that's a major, major thing of, of the whole, whole situation there. And this also kind of explains the whole attention to bureaucracy. I think we spoke about this last time. Again, one of the other things, no matter what happens because of how this responsibility system works, you always want to have all the paperwork because, again... Stalin might purge someone, then uh, Stalin is dead, now Khrushchev is coming over, and you know, uh, and, and now the guy that you have sentenced to death turns out to be in, totally innocent and, and not guilty at all of any crimes. You know, you know, who knows what's going on? 
Therefore, everyone had to do their paper. That's why the, the Soviet and Russian secret police has always been super obsessed specifically with paperwork. Everything needs to have, like, you know, you have to have your T's crossed and everything. Like, uh, and if you compare it, for example, with, with the Nazis, Gestapo would just shoot you. They did not care about your, their, your, your thing. But this is why the torture was very much active in the Soviet Union, because they had they needed you to sign that paper that you were actually guilty of what you were charged for. Then you had a show trial and thing, but then maybe the confession, right? Because then they the can confession. at least, you know, say if, if someone comes after them, look, you know, he signed the confession. I don't know anything. This also shows the totality of the control because even the secret police itself is afraid of the secret police. This is one of the jokes, by the way, because we, uh, again, last time when we spoke, we, we spoke about some of the jokes and how we deal with these horrible subjects and, uh, in a matter that makes us not go insane. There's this joke about Armenian radio, one of my favorites, as usual, right? And the joke is, the joke is Armenian radio gets asked, will there still be secret police under communism? You know, the KGB. Armenian radio answers, no. By that time, the people will have learned to rest themselves. <laughs> which, which makes sense. Which makes sense. And, it, and, it, and in a way, it's sort of, what you're saying about no protests, it's kind of true. They may not arrest themselves literally, but they're definitely showing a lot of self-restraint. <laughs> there, there, were, there were a few protests, a few of them, but they were really suppressed. And also remember the fact that one thing that really happened was also the, the hidden cities, not the hidden, but like, sorry, the closed cities, where everything was controlled. Like, if you live near a, a secret object and everything... That happened, but we have. I don't remember all the protesters, but there were some that protested against, for example, the invasion of Afghanistan. There were such people, they were arrested in like 15 minutes after the Red Square uh, in the Red Square. But it was what, um, about I don't know, oh, it was just one off occasions, it never didn't really happen that that often. So there were people who did some protesting, but there were there were like what actually happened the most were, um, I think. One thing that was played up in the death of Stalin. I remember when when we were watching that, you said that one one thing that really got you pretty. So it massacre. Yeah, yeah. Can the you ma talk more the, about the that? that happened the massacre there. on the bridge. So you said that was like a pretty big inaccuracy, like a, or like one of the yeah like, scenes that they because, took the uh, most liberties with. Well, Oh yeah, yeah. This is the thing is like they they showed that uh, there were people coming to see Stalin's body, and there were like too many of them, and then technically they were all shot, right? A lot of them, but like that never happened, and there was the insane amounts. What really happened was that uh, the Novocherkassk massacre happened. I, I'm not even sure if if that's happening, like uh, you know how how publicized it is, is these days. But this was the massacre which was committed by the Soviet army of the KGB. In the movie, in the death of Stalin, they show like over a thousand people dying or something, which would never happen in Moscow. But what happened is that um, Soviet army and KGB killed a bunch of people who were rallying in the 2nd of June, 1962, because there was a labor strike in the electrolocomotive plant over there because the wages were lowered by about lowered to these people who work there in this Novocherkassk electrolocomotive plant by about 30-35% uh, of, of like total amount. At the same time production quotas were set up which were set up for workers from the plant economy were like raised and it was a huge mess like 1962 was a harsh year and everything so protesters gathered the cities near like people started to protest there 
and they were they did not disperse. And then um, Soviet troops and KGB opened fire, killing 26 and wounding 87, including children. That was insane. Oh my god. Yeah, that was the biggest one happening there. Nothing, nothing in comparison to Soviet times. However, after this, after this, there were show trials, arrests, and cover-ups. About 240 people were arrested. Seven people were convicted of mass disorder. Of course, everyone just got smashed on the head for everything. Including people, you know, on, on all sides of this situation. You know, people got arrested, uh, both who sort of organized everything. That was a big, big issue. In 1962, when actually 62 people... Because if you speak... if you, Secret police is supposed to be, you know, secret. They're not supposed to be in the open. And this was a major blunder. Overt. <laughs> and this was very overt. Yeah. And this was horrible. And then... Like 240 people were arrested about this in, on both sides of, of everything. Okay, so that alone should show you how how this whole thing was treated. But that was a ma- massive inaccuracy because, again, in Moscow, for coming to praise Stalin, where someone was like driven to, yeah, the very idea that they would shoot someone over there, just a bit insane. Uh, people did die at Stalin's wake, but I think they were trampled. They were trampled, but it wasn't exactly organized. It was just... And also, at that point, you don't even know, like, what if this is a fake? Everyone's afraid, because, again, of all this ingrained of the Soviet culture. I spoke with Alistair Pitts from the Russophiles Unite movie podcast, who, who talks about Russian movies. I was invited there to watch the most depressing movie ever, the documentary about Stalin's death, which is, like, five hours long. And almost, has almost oh attacks and everything, yeah. But we had a nice conversation about this, and it was all about... <laughs> is that more depressing than come and see? Oh. Come and see. <laughs> see, come, see. For those of you who don't know, come and see is Belarusian. It's even more depressing than... Uh, like, if you, th- if you think Russian media is depressing, come and see is Belarusian media. That's even more horrid. Do not watch Come and See if you're like no no do watch Come and See but just if you don't have a strong stomach don't uh, don't watch it with your kids that yeah, That's yeah. Def- definitely no uh, Come and Even See you saw is, it when you were ten yeah at school <laughs> oh my gosh well now now that you have seen the movie you can it's uh uh it is the most realistic and most depressing war movie that, that you'll ever see in your life by, by far by far at that it is not a beautiful thing but like and the stalin thing you know i i could i could see in their eyes and, and like what they were doing everywhere over there in the stalin movie i could see how everyone was just worried about how they you know what if this is just a hoax what if what if uh, they're just testing us? What if they're just finding out who's like not mourning hard enough and all that stuff? Right, you know? or who we'll just kill the people that didn't show up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like, and they're running through this because again, like in our previous times when we we're recording this, I want to make sure that your listeners understand how ingrained this fear was. Everyone knew that, that it was there, that the whole Soviet situation was there and and everyone knew what was going on but we were afraid everyone was afraid all the time and it, it changed our culture for the worse and it and it changed and, and then our culture grew the new generation of these secret police people the secret police was a state within a state it was much much more powerful than i don't know a, a, like cia in comparison are in, like they're professionals they're of course they are very professional people 
who do who have done their own like intelligence agency things, right? But the the level of fear, like people make jokes openly about the CIA and and, and the United States. They would never even think about such thing and the Soviet Union before, you know, checking out who's who, who's your friend, whom can you, whom can you trust, all that stuff. It was a much more cultural phenomenon than just a special department of some sort of secret service. That's my whole point here, and I'm, I think I'm really bad at uh, conveying this because there's a lot to talk about in all these cases. I hope that I'm conveying my idea of this quite clearly. You are. Thank you. And I want to ask you uh, something I asked you the first time we recorded too is, are you able to tell me about some personal interactions you've had with secret police forces? Well, uh, let's just say, you know, um, well, some of them live uh, one floor above me for my own safety and protection. Just, I'm just going to say that because uh, of things that have happened. Okay. Secondly, uh, I've also been arrested in, in, in Russia and I've been arrested in Ukraine. In Ukraine, I got arrested because of Viktor, but that's a whole new story. You, if you will join our Discord channel or go see Viktor's Victor's, uh, Victor's YouTube channel, channel you'll, you'll, you'll find things out. Viktor is a special hero of everything. I have had interactions there. I have been vetted. But one thing that really you know drove my knowledge about all this stuff is that, uh, and I found out I can talk about this this time. I had a stepdad and I had a brother. Stepdad has a brother. He worked in our internal services. He worked there during uh, the Soviet times. He was on the actually counter-terrorist unit. But the actual counter-terrorist unit. Not the guys who pretend to be counter-terrorist and, uh, you know, just beat people up or something. No, the actual counter-terrorism unit. And then up until his death, he uh, used to train Latvian counter uh, Latvian Ministry of Interior counterintelligence guys uh, up until I think the year 1998. So that's that's one thing, and he taught me a lot of things about how all this situation worked in the Soviet Union. That's my, that's my interaction there. I was told that I can speak about my my stepfather's brother. He was his name was Gust uh, Gust Gustavsons, no less, mind you, which is interesting. But yeah, yeah, he used to work in in there. Did he ever write anything down or or record any memoirs or something like that? No, he's the he's the reason why I also know a bit more about guns than your average Latvian uh, Latvian person. What are the gun laws in Latvia? Uh, pretty much the same as everywhere else in the EU. We have strict gun laws. Uh, we ha you have to you have to pass through a um, you have to you have to do an exam on law on first aid and on gun handling and you can only own smoothbore hunting guns in which case you have to be in a hunting kind of society or you can have a handgun semi-auto like only like semi-auto max for your own personal protection no no nothing full auto allowed and you have to again have you have to pass a first aid test so that you know in case of whatever you can give first aid to people you have to pass a law test so that you know exactly when and how you can use the gun. And then you have to also pass an actual test. You have to go first to the firing range and shoot guns enough so that you understand how they function. Basically, so that, so that you, you wouldn't hurt so you wouldn't hurt someone by an accident. So a whole procedure. But I have to I have to also state that it's it's not that horrible because we also have to go 
we also have to go through uh, the, a lot of similar situations when we get our driver's licenses. You cannot get the driver's license without without passing a first aid test. Interesting. It's because, you know, there's only 2 million of us. A lot of our laws are extremely lax and everything. However, uh, you know, everything that can possibly result in deaths or damage to our fellow Latvians, that's treated very, very seriously. Which kind of makes sense because, you know, again, only 2 million of us after all. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I would have thought of doing first aid for as part of a curriculum for owning a firearm. Um, I would not have thought of that for driving, but it makes sense. We don't have to do that here. Yeah, I know. We also can drink from the age of 16. <laughs> yeah, it's probably good that 16-year-olds here aren't drunk and using firearms. Yeah, because they can drive. Drinking and driving. Yeah, the DUI stuff is... is uh, like it can it can land you years in prison for being drinking under for driving under influence. Your car might get instantly confiscated. And by the way, at this point, send to Ukraine because that's another thing. If you're caught driving under the influence, and then your car can get confiscated from you. And what we do with the cars is we send them as aid to Ukraine. Yes, driving under influence is a hyper evil crime here because. A lot of deaths come come from that. I've known some of some people, like in my hometown, to die in car accidents, but I'm not sure of the ones I'm thinking of. I'm not sure if any of them were alcohol related. I don't think so. It's a thing. Sometimes, sometimes these things tend to tend to happen. Like I, I hate. I don't have my driver's license, by the way. Uh, yeah, I need to get one. <laughs> I think I think I had one in the United States because when I was uh, living there for a bit, I went and did because over there, as far as over there at least, uh, I just you just go and pass an exam. Yeah, you don't even have to. Say yeah, I mean, your school. <laughs> there's there's quote unquote driving school. Yeah, which surprised me. It's not mandatory. You 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 have to just pay money, do an exam. Yeah, it's kind of, it's a joke. I mean, why? It's how? As a teenager, I think it's more rigorous. At least it was in Washington State where I used to live. But like in Minnesota, when I renewed my driver's license, all I had to do was pass an exam. But I see a lot of like really bad driving, especially around where I live. And it's like shocking to me that those kinds of people that I see weaving in and I'll out give, of traffic. I'll give. I'll give I'll give a spoiler here. Uh, also, also one one thing that is very weird here is that how all of you drive with uh, manuals. How all you drive with automatic stick. We we drive manual stick here every time in Europe. So I learned on a manual, and I prefer it. I unfortunately now drive an automatic. That's just standard. If we're back in the car business, because again, hi. By the way, nice being first time on your show. Finally, after how many times? It's weird. But yeah, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, other than the listed men episode, I suppose. Uh, Except I was no, on you your were show. on my. Sh yeah. That was on my show. This is on your show. This is different. Again, we're doing this because, well, to be honest, if we're if we're going to go down to all the crimes and all the horrible situations happening down there, and I have to record an episode on my own show after this one because pogroms happen. If we if we don't if we don't do jokes and don't do silly stuff, then. Uh, it's very, very difficult to deal with this stuff. I wonder how 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 do you manage to deal deal with this on on your show? Silly jokes are the best, I think. Yeah, I think so. I, when appropriate, I try to keep things pretty light. I, I I knew going in that it couldn't just be like heavy all the time. Otherwise, it would just be unlistenable. 
So I have to pepper my dumbass humor in there, here and there. Ah, well, it's, it is what it is. We all have to do these things sometimes because, especially when it comes to Russia, again, you know, they, they said about, like, in the 19th century, they spoke about Prussian army, the German ones, the Königsberg ones, right? They spoke about how it was an army with a state. I would state that at least the Soviet Union, at least, was it was a secret police with the state, if you think about it. <laughs> and is it still that way in the you Russian Federation? Right now, right now, I don't think so, no. Right now, I think it's more of a, more of a criminal organization with the state. Because, like, especially what happened in, in Dagestan yesterday, just... Yeah, talk about that. What happened in Dagestan yesterday? Oh, boy. Oh. For that, you're gonna to have to listen to my episode. But uh, it's just, it just give this basically in short, in short pogroms, literal 21st century pogroms. Uh, there were a, a, a over all over a bunch of uh, more of a Caucasus region places with uh, Muslim majority populations. There were like people running around houses and and uh, hotels where they suspected Jewish people might be in. And in Dagestan, they actually stormed an airport. They stormed an airport went onto the field and checked the landing planes because in the local telegram channels, they had heard that there was a plane coming in from Israel and there might be Jewish refugees there. I did, I did happened, see that. I did see that. One thing, one, thing was, one thing that shocked me was like when I saw how, when I saw how, you know, the, it, recently there was this charity thing where a bunch of people from a village had collected enough money to send a local kid to get some medicine in Israel, get treatment in Israel, because, well, Russia, sadly, these days is not known for high-quality medical services. And one of the kids that had gotten a surgery was coming back with this plane, and he was, well, very much traumatized by, you know, how everything was happening there and, and how propaganda handled this just pretty, pretty nasty. And, and the weirdest part is that this is the moment where the so-called, you know, so-called police should be doing something, but they just dispersed, and one of them even had to record an, um, an account on you know, how he even dared to pull out a gun against these people. And, you know, it's, it's, it seems kind of, again, with the decline of all the situation, seems kind of weird how they can just... how they can beat up protesters and how they can deal with the regular stuff, but when it comes to actually stopping something. This, by the way, got... Uh, this whole situation, it got classified not as anything like... It got classified as um, just disturbances and hooliganism. Imagine this, a violent mob storms an international airport in the United States. No, that would be... Or just storms it, and then, then they also just uh, take over it and do it for racially motivated reasons, no less. No, I mean, that would be a shock. I, I saw the footage. I, I did not read more into it and i could just listen to your next episode um, I, I, I hope your listener as well I, but, yeah uh, it was it was because of it was because of the whole uh situation with gaza yeah and israel i guess what it, my but, question was is it was it completely grassroots like was it random like you're saying that it never is it, ne it never is okay that's one thing that you should learn that uh <sighs> Ramzan Kadyrov with a of huge influence over there. He's tried to show his power as well. And any pogrom in history ever has been either... It's either approved by the government... Like, no mob would ever go out on the street and do something like that if they wouldn't have 
at least a basic knowledge of how of the they're not going to get punished. They, they let people like after the airport was taken, that was a bit too much. But then, like there were people who were doing this, they were just walking peacefully home, and very few were even arrested. Like there was this quite nod of approval and cops, you know, being very careful about what they saw and what they didn't see, just not to offend things. This is what you get when violence gets when violence gets kind of normalized, I suppose. Well, I thought this was kind of uh, interesting because Putin had made um some comment about um yeah, now they're now they're trying to now they're trying to find like instigators, and they will find instigators. For example, uh, Vladimir Solovyov, my our favorite propagandist guy, right? He's already stated that he thinks that uh, uh, it is uh, American responsibility that it is the United States Secret Services, Secret Police, if you will, yeah, who's responsible who are doing for this. this. Yeah, they always say that. And I thought it was what I was going to say is I thought it was interesting thinking about how Putin, like not that long ago, was making a comment about um, Anatoly Chabayas leaving Russia for Israel, and like made some comment like, "Oh, he's no longer." Anatoly Borosovich, he's now like yeah, some he's, Anatoly Israelovich or something like that. Anatoly Chabayas was a minister in Boris Yeltsin's government who was instrumental in the development and implementation of the price liberalization and privatization schemes in the early 90s in Russia. When I was wrapping up part 11 for the Russia series, Chabayas had actually left Russia for Israel since he was the highest member of Putin's government who opposed the invasion of Ukraine. Anatoly Tobias is Jewish, which is why Putin took shots at him in this particular speech. If you'd like to learn more, I would encourage you to listen to part 11 of the Russian secret police series. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing, weird, weird that. thing. And they still, you know, and the still weird part is the fact that they still somehow call the Ukrainian side Nazis. And we're all Nazis, right? I mean, <laughs> what, what do you mean? <laughs> Uh, you, nothing if, makes if, sense. <laughs> if, there, if there are pogroms in your country, right? If if your if your country's the one that's doing the doing there's there's doing pogroms, you kind of lose the right to call the other side Nazis. I I, I would think at least. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're the one Alexander the Third didn't have the luxury of calling somebody else Nazis. <laughs> they just had pogroms. <laughs> I suppose so, but this is also a result of all the all the xenophobia, all the xenophobia and and all all what's happening right now. Because if everyone's your enemy, right? If everyone is has been portrayed as the enemy of the people, if if everyone is this bad person, if if you portray everyone constantly as the enemy, I, I think the propaganda agency has taken over what uh, you know. Previously, the enemies of the people in the Soviet era, at least, they weren't portrayed in media as as something that like that. The secret, like again, the secret police used to be competent. They dealt with actual dissidents and people. They used to do things quietly. They they there were you could never even imagine in Soviet era a pogrom happening, ever. Say what you want. There was anti-Semitism, but there wouldn't be like no open pogroms. But like now, I'll paraphrase Big Lebowski because that's. Uh, that's a thing. Uh, say what you want about the Soviet Union, but at least it was a state. It wasn't just a criminal organization. And I think the big shift happened. The big shift happened in the 90s because of, you know, these people, as we spoke before, 
you know, they, a lot of them truly believe that they were doing something good for the state, right? And you have to believe that. And when the state itself goes away, then what do you do? You turn to other structures of sort of power that, that keep you sort of in check or something. So I think the big, big problem with this was when the 90s happened and the whole structure of the secret police and of the organized crime, when, when that whole thing shifted together and sort of became one and the same. I think that's where, where the downfall sort of happened. I think that that's when we're, that's where we can see how this whole thing is happening. And that's really sad because, again, I've spoken to a lot of people who used to work back then in Sovetera. Not, not anymore, obviously, but some of them were, especially those who did the, the foreign service things, they were truly proud of what they were doing. They knew they were, they were standing up to the United States in a sense that they truly felt like, okay, I don't like the Soviet Union, but they also didn't want the Americans meddling into this this whole affair. It was a different sort of, I don't know, you could call different it mindset. Yeah, and now, no, that's gone. Like, what do you do? And, and right now, this is this whole criminalization aspect. That, that's that, that's pretty pretty horrible, I think, because if you remember again, there's always this whole idea of of World War II cult. Mozhen Pavtarich and all this, all this stuff. And the gripe, yeah, we have our admin, by the way, in a couple of final conversations that Sadal Knife says her biggest takeaway is the Christopher's biggest gripe is the secret police used to be competent. Yes, they used to be competent. Now they're not. <laughs> now they're just stupid. And they used to, the thing is, they used to be competent. They used to be scary. And now what? But now they're like kind of cosplayers. And the impact is gone. And the biggest issue is that, you know, the secret police will have to do their job. Every country has their own secret services, right? All of them. There is yep. no country without secret service. After this whole war ends, I believe it's going to fall apart. There's going to be a lot of issues there, but they're going to have to have some sort of way how to deal with these, these people who do pogroms, who, who are now returned from the war, who are now like organized crimes of the rise. You're going to have to have these professionals there. So the very fact that right now their secret police is incompetent means that for, for me, who lives next door to Russia, and for people inside Russia or whatever is going to be left of Russia, yeah, it's going to be horrible because they're going to have to deal with this extremely violent society, people ready to do pogroms, and their own secret police not being competent enough to actually deal with the threats. That was my yeah. main point. And I remember when you and um, Alex from History Impossible had a conversation about Alexander Dugan's daughter being killed. One of you said, like, oh, if it was, I think it was you too. You said, oh, if it had been the KGB, they would have gotten the right target. Yep. I still believe that. I still truly believe that. The KGB, because again, because of, of the things that I, I know about how everything works, I think that. Like I said before, inside the whole secret services in the Soviet era, it was the thing that the CIA had the most money, the KGB had the best, had the most trained people. They used to take pride in the quality of their work. Because, again, we always speak about all the horrible stuff, right? But there were also, like in every secret service, there are people who are doing actually decent job, as, as such as it is. You need to have someone to actually, you know, check on check on to make sure terrorist, terrorist attacks don't happen. As much as it is pretty horrible to need these people, we do need them. We do need people who are so skilled in violence, is how I like to put it, right? And if we don't, then sometimes bad things can happen. And I'm, I'm starting to think that in the future of Russia, there's a lot of bad things that are, are about to happen because of how 
they've lost a lot of these competencies. How do you see the FSB or the next iteration evolving if Russia continues on the path that you predict that they will end up on? They can either not be as repressive or they can be more repressive. I do not know how it's going to solve itself inside of Russia, right? What I do know for sure is that if everything goes on as I have foreseen it happen, then uh, the United States and other countries are going to have their brilliant first pick of excellent, uh, you know, of people who knew stuff, of professionals. We're going to see a lot of, and the same thing's going to happen with scientists and everything. We're going to, because the brain drain is going to be massive. That's for sure. Yeah. We're going to see a lot of these things. Inside Russia, I think, I think we're going to, we're going to see a lot of regional powers because definitely a lot of databases are going to get purged. A lot of, uh, because currently with all the corrupt governors and everything, and all the corrupt, even people with corruption in FSB, there's going to be a lot of people who uh, accidentally disappear not to talk to anyone too much, you know. That's that's my idea. And sorry for this being all philosophical and everything. No, it's okay. Because of my dealings with, with my journalism work, I know when the, the secret guys do their, their job right and when it's necessary. But it's also a job that requires a lot from people and can go horribly wrong. One thing that I've learned... There always needs to be accountability towards some politician, towards someone else. The secret services cannot ever be allowed to run themselves. Then, then everything goes goes horribly, horribly bad. That's how that's how I view it personally. Of my episodes, which one is your favorite? KG Brinksmanship was was the best one because that tracks also with what I read from the Russian side of things about how all the dealings were happening in the background, yeah. in the background, and how how things how things were going on. Then, of course, the one where you interrogate the our friend Alex, which I still haven't listened to. I think one of my favorite parts of that episode is at the very beginning about how he started podcasting. It has to do with termites. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh no. The brinksmanship thing is like there's a an author called Vladimir Razun. You should know him by he goes by the pen name Viktor Suvora. He a lot of times writes about World War II, he has alternative theories or whatever, but he used to defect as a GRU agent from the Soviet Union to the to the British Secret Services. Now he writes books and gives lectures, at least he used to a while back ago. Is he still alive? I think so. He might be alive. I, I have a bunch of his books. He's a very interesting case where you can read about how, because he also participated personally. He was he was uh, in the tank department when the whole Prague Spring happened. And he writes about a lot about his experiences as a GRU agent, which is more reliable than his stuff on World War II because he tends to cherry pick some things. And his World War II stuff, that's a bit more controversial. However, when it comes to his work as a secret police agent, that's very reliable because he truly did defect in, I think, late 70s or early 80s. I don't remember exactly. But the book is called Aquarium, and I recommend everyone who wants to know more about, well, that was specifically GRU, but he draws and he talks a lot about the KGB as well there. I, that's one of the books that I highly recommend everyone reads if you want to get... An additional thing. And I recommend you read that as well, because that said definitely has come out in English since, again, he defected to the UK. Vladimir Razun or Viktor Savorov, highly recommended to learn more, especially from the insider perspective. So we went on vacation in June. Well, we stayed in D.C. for the first couple of days before we drove down to North Carolina. 
And I really wanted to go see the plaque at the Occidental. It's a restaurant. Where Alexander Feklasov and John Scully met to discuss the deal to end the Cuban Missile mm -hmm. Crisis. But at least on Google Maps, which isn't always accurate, it said that it was closed. We didn't get a chance to make our way over there to check out the plaque. I think it's like bronze or something with a, a little note about like at this table, these two men discussed the end of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's obviously written more eloquently than that, <laughs> but that's, that's the gist of it. The plaque says, at this table during the tense moments of the Cuban Missile Crisis, a Russian offer to withdraw missiles from Cuba was passed by the mysterious Russian Mr. X to ABC TV correspondent John Scully. On the basis of this meeting, the threat of a possible nuclear war was avoided. No, like Cuban Missile Crisis and everything, that's, that's one thing that I trust in the whole Secret Services part of Russian Federation today is that I trust those guys who are who, who are still there to do like the, the Soviet missile test. The guys who are responsible for the nukes, basically, which is what I want to say. These guys are still the old school people, a lot of them, because back then, you know, face is face and politics is politics. However, everyone has, you know, their loved ones and their wives and everything, and right. no one really wanted to blow up the whole world. And the stupidest part, about the whole Cold War and all that era is the fact that you know that at one point, if it would have gotten too far, no one would have wanted the world to explode, but it would have. Because one stupid decision would have led to another one, and we just have to be really happy that we're still, you know, alive and kicking here. Fred, now there are talks about Putin wanting to do a, a missile test. I don't think it's going to happen, though, but there, there are talks about that. Just a, a show of force. The problem is... It also breaks all sorts of international law if they actually do a missile test. Like, not a missile test, a nuclear bomb test in the atmosphere. Like, what, are they going to blow it up over, like, uh, Novinia Zabla or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, uh, remember that it's still pretty close to the Arctic Circle. And, you know, do you know who also is pretty close to the Arctic Circle? Alaska and Canada and, you know, all those nice places. Now we're getting back to depression. No, no, bad. Let's send this on a positive note because I have to record my own episode, which is pretty sad. So, uh, If you were in a police force, would you rather be one of the rank and file or one, <laughs> or one of the directors? Definitely rank and file, 100%. 100%. Much safer life. Easier. <laughs> better. You can also go... You can maybe even, like, retire at one point. <laughs> And not like, you know, retire from life is what you mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there is no retiring from being uh, up there on top. There is there is no such thing. Everyone knows in, in these parts of the world that there is no such thing as an ex-KGB agent, right? So, um, yeah, yeah, I'd like to be able to re retire and live a peaceful life if I was one of those people. I, I don't know. I would like to be one of those people who are not even involved in, in Russian, it's called обеспечение. You know, the, the the securing things. I I like to be one of those secretary people. You know, who just who just sit there and do the do the boring stuff. The, the more boring, the humanly possible. Doesn't seem as fun, but you know, uh, I accidentally happened to land a job that is also you know, which most people would probably consider fun, right? And uh, well, it is, but there's no job security. I've been nearly killed a couple of times, and it's, it's my 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 fiance is not very satisfied about this whole situation. It's a lot more fuss than than most people are ready for. And even even if you think about this, it's way less cute than people think it actually is. To, to be honest, that is also uh, a bit of a harsh truth here, because you know, becoming a war correspondent journalist is it is cool sometimes. Yeah, 
But then there's also the, the horrible sides, and I'm pretty sure the same thing goes for secret agents. Like the ones who are listening to this episode, I'm pretty sure they will be. 100%. 100%. I wonder that. I wonder that sometimes. No, no, dude. dude, I, dude if, you're, if you're getting me on the show, you're, you're at least going to get the guys who listen to everything what, I, what I'm on. You know, so at least at least that's guaranteed. You mean the guys at Langley? Yeah, the guys at Langley definitely, but the guys uh, at Saint Petersburg because right now they've reshifted themselves as well, so it's gonna be fun. But okay, I really have to finish up my script on my own episode. I'll make sure to let everyone know that we have recorded this. Perfect. Uh, on, on some fourth attempt or yeah. something. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening to the end. If you enjoyed this episode, please go check out the Eastern Border podcast hosted by my guests today, Kristaps Andresens. Please give him and myself a rating and review on your preferred podcast app if you're feeling generous. Please check out the Secret Police YouTube channel. I got a couple of videos on there with more in the works. Links to the books we discussed and my socials in the episode notes. More from Secret Police to come before the new year. Agents dismissed. 